Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. It's 2016, and so according to the Gentile calendar, we are in our second year of podcasting. A happy belated Three Kings Day to you. My children got the day off. Did they get it off in New York? In Heschel? Not in the Heschel School. <laughs> no, they did not. In the New not. Haven Public Schools, Three Kings Day, another holiday, just when you thought you'd send your kids back to school. You only have one king where I send my kids <laughs> to school. It's Hashem, Mark. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by senior writer Leah Leibowitz. Ahalan wasahalan. That too. Baruch Hashem. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Sup. Sup. Later in the show, we'll be talking with guest Jew Bethany Mandel, victim of the Peeping Tom Mikvah rabbi and a fine writer. She's the fine writer, not the rabbi. <laughs> and she's the author of The Convert's Bill of Rights. Our guest Gentile is writer and late-in-life dad, Rand Richards Cooper. Ladies and gentlemen, menches and wenches. If you read Tablet this week, you know that we're pushing wench as the female form of mensch. This is the only podcast you'll ever need in 2016. Can we agree on that? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You've been wondering, what, what do I listen to in podcasting? This is the one-stop shopping for podcasting. We're like cereal, but all the mysteries are divine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice couple weeks off. We had a little little special you know, best of last week. We all slept in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had a great week. You had a great week? What'd yeah. you do? So the day after Christmas, as uh, what's, I'm what's Christmas to do? It's like the, it's like a Hanukkah with a fat guy in a red suit. Or in my household, it's known as the day when even Target is closed. <laughs> <laughs> so the day after the day, even Target is closed. Um, I I did the decent Jewish thing, and I went to the shooting range um, by my in-laws' house in Pennsylvania. Um, and it was that bad, huh? Right. That's taking getting away from the in-laws to a new level. To a very new level. It's like, you know what would help after three days together? Semi-automatic and about 150 rounds. Um, so you, you have to pick your targets because unlike the Israeli army where targets are amply provided for you, <laughs> in shooting ranges uh, in America, you, oh, you have to buy, you know, little like posters of, of you know, targets. They actually have at. the posters with the black cutout so, on them. So they have, yeah, they have like the black, you know, figure cutout. They have like zombies. And then I look at one of the posters, and it's incredible. It's this guy. He's kind of tall, kind of thin, with a mustache and his hair combed back. And I'm looking at this guy, and, and you know, the shooting range in Pennsylvania, it's not a politically correct place. Uh, I'm looking at this poster, and I'm thinking, is this, who is this supposed to be? It kind of looks like a Palestinian terrorist from the 70s. It also kind of looks like you know, maybe a gay gentleman from the 60s. It also kind of looks like Freddie Mercury. It's got the mustache, It no could be beard. a Latino guy. Like, who is it that you're racist against? Like, if you're going to be racist, don't be opaque about it. Just tell me who I'm supposed to hate. So I ended up getting the zombie target, so which is was a much it? better target. You never asked? I like to think it was gay, Latino, Palestinian terrorist Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Singing Killer Queen. Yeah. <laughs> Well, nothing, nothing so exciting on my home front. But there was news of the Jews. For example, the Orthodox Union, which is like the, the Harvard Business School of kosher certification. They're, they're, <laughs> it's like the Hogwarts of the, the Orthodox Hogwarts, world. Their stamp goes a long way. Has begun certifying kosher marijuana for medicinal purposes only, of course. In Israel, the Ministry of Education has banned a novel translated into English as Borderline. <laughs> Do they know that's a Madonna song? By Border the way? Life, and they did not ban it. They simply did not include no, no, it no, in I... a list. So if you'd listen to me after my parenthesis, has banned a novel from high school use. Nope, did not no, ban it. It they... was never approved and then banned. It was just not included on the list. Not included on the list. Yep. It was taken off one syllabus. It was not taken off any syllabus. It was just it, not included it was, in it syllabus. Was, hashtag 2016. <laughs> 
because of its Arab Jewish love story. I just wanted to stop here and ask, are there a lot of Arab Jewish love stories? Are there in this Israel is my this week? In the actual in uh, actual life? In in the actual uh you know, list of books that you have to read in high school. Which by the way, no one reads. Well, everybody reads. <laughs> oh, in Israel, everyone reads. Them. Graduate because there's like a three hour test on this shit. You actually, it's hard uh, to do they graduate. Not have cliffs like there? five of the books are about Israeli Arab love affairs. So why this book? Because someone said, you know what, we already have five of those. Can we please get something Jewish in the Jewish state? And all the liberals are like, oh my God, you're censoring us. It's basically Hitler all over again. In other news, record numbers of tourists visited Auschwitz and the Anne Frank House last year. Some 1.268 million people visited the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam. And the Auschwitz Memorial Museum, crematorium, I don't know what it is. I haven't been. Uh, broke its record for annual visitors with 1.72. You've never been to Auschwitz. I love it how you say the Auschwitz crematorium slash museum slash gift shop. <laughs> broke its record with over 1.72 million visitors. So, Stephanie, yes, I haven't been to Auschwitz. Yes, we have no bananas. I have not been to yes, Auschwitz. but you have been to the Anne Frank House. I've been to the Anne Frank House. Stephanie, you've been to the Anne Frank House. Now, were, were either of you uh, uh, on shrooms when you did that? Stephanie? I will neither confirm nor deny. Isn't that what you always say? It's not what I always say. I was so the Anne Frank House was the one Amsterdam experience for which I was not shrooming, and I can't. It was not intentional. It's just the shrooms had worn off by the time I got to the Anne Frank House. We'd been to the Van Gogh Museum. We'd walked through some parks. We'd seen some dwarves, which is a weird experience on shrooms. And that's not an anti-little person comment. I'm just saying that when you're on shrooms, you don't know if it's just that your depth and height perception. Is so like when you, if you got into Anne Frank's house, you're like, is this place really small? It's or so like, small. Am I, is it am, I really, am I a giant? <laughs> am I huge? Is this annex real? Liel? Oh, I, I am I'm the asshole who, who did shrooms and then went to the oh, Anne Frank purpose. house directly because I thought, you know, hey, <laughs> you're going to have your perception messed with. This may be the place you want to do it with. So do, do you know this movie, A Night at the Museum, where like all the historical figures come to life? Yeah, it's for and, children. Like, right. So, so the visit to the Anne Frank house on shrooms for me was like a real life version of that movie. Only terrible <laughs> because you're sitting Ben there. Stiller wasn't in it, and no, because figures did come back, but they're like all the wrong figures. You're like, is that an a not? Oh no, that's the guest book. I'm okay. Like, you know, everything Bieber is sort of everything sort of vibrating with malice. I think I feel torn about this because I I think what you're saying is right. Like I think a lot of people do go to the Anne Frank House. They go to the these museums, this this this, and they like probably are high, and then they go to Anne Frank. And I know a lot of people aren't. And I know it's a lot of school groups. And the same thing. I mean, with right, like the, so the high kind of, school groups less likely to be shrooming than like the weird American adults right, who are like college, college <laughs> who are like I'm here. Yo, dude, you'll be funny. Who are obnoxious Americans wherever they go. But so like part of me, it, you know, 2015. This is a year when we're losing Holocaust survivors. You know, like the with the the connection to these events is 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 ever more tenuous. So to see these numbers you're sort of like, "Oh, great. Like this this it's hopeful because you're saying, okay, 1.72 million people, people went to still Auschwitz. Care. People care. But on the other hand, you're sort of like, or is this just sort of like death tourism and and we are going like, you know, you're sending school groups to Auschwitz and they also see all this other stuff. So you don't know how impactful of a I hate that word, but it's not a word, but it is now. Are these students getting something from these experiences? Is oh, what these, I'm asking. These or students are getting, I think, a, a lifelong lesson in absolutely hating and not caring about history. Well, 
On a more positive note, the New York Post, for lack of better news, ran an article about the phenomenon of scooping out your bagel and putting cream cheese in, bagel scooping. Our own Jonathan Zalman took to the pages of Tablet to defend bagel scooping on the grounds that the cream cheese is the really important ingredient. I have to say, growing up in in Goyland of Western Massachusetts, I didn't know people ever scooped out the inside of a bagel to make more room for cream cheese. Growing up on Long Goyland. Yeah. Oh, see what I did there? You scoop out the bagel because it's less carbs. Fewer carbs? It's carbs... (laughs) Whatever. Whatever you I want it I never to be. did it. But, like, you know, sometimes you do get those bagels that are a little too doughy, and you're like, too much dough. The actual, the real culprit is too much cream cheese. All right. So, you know, I don't believe in an interventionist God, uh, and I, I don't think God necessarily, you know, smites people anymore. Uh, Should he for, smite the, the bagel scoopers? I think scooping bagels is probably one of the smittable, smiteable <laughs> offenses remaining. Smearable? You know, this is like, this takes being a, a gluten-free, uh, you know, decaf-drinking uh, vegan to to a whole new level. Uh, it is an abomination against nature. So saith Liel. Our Jewish guest today is Bethany Mandel. She is a convert to Judaism who is a widely published freelance writer, but one of whose claims to fame is that the rabbi who converted her was the influential Washington, D.C. pervert, uh, Barry Freundel, who filmed women going into the mikveh, the ritual bath, and got a six and a half year sentence for his troubles. Um, He was found guilty of 52 counts of voyeurism. We're going to post his apology letter online. We're going to talk to Bethany right now about that whole episode and more. In the wake of that revelation, Mandel and another convert were asked to join uh, an Orthodox committee to oversee the conversion processes. And she also wrote a convert's bill of rights. Bethany. Hey. Thank you. Uh, But before we talk about any of that, um, I believe a uh, welcome is in order. Uh, You have joined the uh, righteous ranks of the National Rifle Association. I did. Yes. Well, welcome aboard, sister. Whoa, seriously? Yeah. I have like belly of the beast in here. I was not <laughs> anticipating that. Well, just just the two of us. Yeah, half the wow. room. Half the room is NRA members. Right half now. the room yeah. right now. Stephanie, you're, you're safe. not. I'm not. Stephanie, not yet. Not right. yet. High Stephanie five. prefers swords and yeah. Epes. I'm like what old do you call school. Those, those? Epes, yeah. But I'm more. <laughs> I'm foil. So. Were you foil? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't. I didn't know. How Liel's, did you know that? Liel's more deeply read in your. Um, I guess so. I'm going to update Twitter from handle. Wayne Lapierre for everyone who joins, just so I can make sure. So welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It's I appreciate great it. to have you. Did you get the bag or the knife? No, I didn't. I so I'm waiting on the bag. So I actually didn't want to join because they send so much crap, and then they say like, "Give us your money for the crap we sent you that you didn't ask for." But I got to a point where I was like, "Okay, I'm going to join, <laughs> but please don't send me your crap." So. Well, the bag is lovely. It's a, it? it's a very okay. pleasing shade of gray. And if you have two kids, you, right. can, you sure can store a lot. In well, it. everything's a diaper bag when you have two kids. Yes. And by the way, what a kick-ass diaper bag is an NRA logo. <laughs> <It really laughs> says, like, don't cool. mess with me. Yeah, you go into the playground, cool. you just put it ever so gently on the corner. It's like, okay, well, I'm that sure moms. that'll make me really popular at, <laughs> at playgroups. Like, hi, I might have a gun in here. Would you like to come play with my children? <laughs> Uh, we had this little conversation beforehand where we said, do we ask her about the whole mikvah thing? It's kind of embarrassing. She probably doesn't want to talk about it. And then it's like, uh, yeah, of course we're going to ask you yeah, about, it about it because you're kind of out there about it, you know? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I, I have a two-part question. First, I want to know, how did you grow up religiously? Because you're, okay. you are a convert. Yeah. So why don't we take that part first? Okay. Murphy is your maiden name? The- so sort of. It's so complicated. Okay. So my parents, my, my my parents were intermarried. My dad was Jewish. And my mom was Catholic. 
Um, and Frandel actually found this like to be really fascinating. I did not remotely get along with my father. I didn't see him again after I was like seven years old. Um, so my name was Horowitz. And then when I was 18, the first thing I did, my 18th birthday present to myself was change my last name to my mother's, which was Murphy. Um, so my mom brought me to like the Catholic church and, and wanted me to sort of experience her religion. Um, but Unbeknownst to me at the time, my parents' divorce actually was because of religion, because my dad wanted to raise me Jewish. My mom wanted to raise me Catholic. You think they would have talked about that before they got married? So they didn't think they were going to have kids. And then they Whoa. were like, yeah, yeah. Um, and So oops. were you an accident? It's never been explicitly God said. God makes no accidents, <laughs> Mark. 11 years into their marriage, I came along. Um, and so like part of their divorce agreement was like, let her choose. Wait, how old were you when I they think I divorced? I seven. Oh, I was like three when they divorced. What every, what every three-year-old wants is, do you want to be a Jew or a Christian? Right. And like, it's your fault we're getting divorced. Right. So really make a decision. Like, make it a good one. Right. We had 14 good years until just now. Yes. And... Yes. And then you ruined it. Um, but they actually did that fairly nicely, considering. Um, so, yeah. So they gave me a choice. And my mom brought me to church. And all the Jesus statues on the walls, like, really creeped me out. Um, and like the blood dripping and everything. And I was like, this is not for me at all. I'm sorry, because I know this is really crass, but given the circumstances, I can't help but think of a joke in which one of your parents says, you know, the Catholic Church, I don't want to go into this institution full of perverts. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, that is that for sure. Welcome and to I've, Rabbi Foynell's mikvah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've definitely thought God. that before. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so my parents gave me the choice and my mom said, you know, Jews are people of the book. And I was like, I really love books. Books are great. I'm going to be that. And I really liked matzo ball soup. So that was pretty much it. That's my deep theological decision at seven years old. And here I am. That's our next marketing campaign. Yeah. It's like <laughs> books and matzo ball soup. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go with gefilte fish, but we're like, uh, uh, nobody no. likes that. No, my mom. Do you like do you house. like bloody guy or do you like delicious, <laughs> comforting soup? Yeah. All right. So you're 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 going along. You're a reformed Jew. You've yeah. got your books. You've got your soup. I mean, that's this is you're doing what most <laughs> Life is pretty freaking what, good. This is what most American Jews opt for, which is yeah. like reform Judaism, books and soup. Right. And then at some point you say, I want to go hardcore. Like it's it's time to get get real. Yeah. And how do you end up? In Pervy Perverstein's mikvah. (laughs) So I've often wondered why I became Orthodox. Like, I honestly couldn't tell you, like, I had a moment where I was like, this is like it. I, so I went to college at Rutgers and all my friends were Orthodox. And I was like, Shabbat seems nice. I could do this. Like, I don't put a lot of, like, thought into my really big decisions. So I was like, Shabbat seems nice. And I don't really mind keeping kosher. So, yeah, I could do this. And then I did. So then you thought... I got to go see Pervy McPerverstein. Uh, no, there's a lot of steps in between there. Um, so I contacted like a, a million rabbis and they were all like, yeah, sorry, we like it's too much of a hassle. We don't really want to deal with it. And Pervy McPerverstein was like, I love working with converts. Come to Washington. And I was like, OK. And I did. And he like was the only I mean, to his credit, he actually converted people like so many rabbis refuse to even deal with it because it's such it's such a political mishigas. It's such a hassle. And they don't they don't want to deal. So he I mean, you think every rabbi would want more notches on his convert poll. I mean, no, 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 No. really more trouble than it's worth. Yeah. You have to spend a lot of time with them. You make no money. And if they if they decide not to be orthodox later down the road, then that that that's is bad on you yeah i had no idea so 
anyway, we let's skip ahead and and it, it sounds though like you have just from 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 the, the the bits of your writing that I've read, it sounds like you have a, a genuinely complex relationship with him or or or, or view of him because yeah, someone who's done obviously a lot of bad but uh, uh, but also some good. I mean, it sounds yeah. like he's really you know kind of helped you along that journey. You could say more about that. Yeah, I mean, he, thank you. I appreciate that. No one's ever asked me for that part. And I've said that part to a million reporters and no one ever publishes it. So I appreciate that. Um, he agreed to convert me. And he, there was this um, this night, I uh, was hosting a hospitality meal with other like people in the community. And there were visitors there and they heard I was a convert and said like, we won't eat her food. And... <laughs> Yeah, it was really and like the woman like refused to talk to me after I said I was converting like she wouldn't even like exchange words with me. You're like, hey, mom, is the Jesus offer still on the table? Yeah, yeah. Is that bloody guy still around? Yeah. The Jews graciously offering hospitality to people who want to be like us. Yeah. And I was offering hospitality to her. And in response, there was like no words exchanged after I said I was converting. So she got there and talked to her husband and said, you know, I don't think we can eat the food here. I don't think it's kosher. And so my boyfriend and our friends said, why don't you ask the rabbi? So all of the men in the group, and I was unfortunately then left there with this, like, can I curse on this? Yes. This bitch. So, um, and so all of the men literally ran from DuPont to Georgetown and went to ask the rabbi. This is such like an old school scenario. Yeah. Like, can't they just call, oh, is it Shabbat? It was Shabbat, then? yeah. And so they literally ran and they got there and they knocked on Freindel's door and Sharon and, and Barry answered the door and they said, can can we eat Bethany's cooking? And Barry was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Of course you can. Like, what? Oh, I wouldn't have sent you to someone's house that wasn't kosher. How dare you insult her by sending your husbands here to ask if, if the food is kosher? Like, have you never heard of honoring the gear? Like, have you never read the Torah? Do you not understand, like, what Judaism is, is supposed to do? Like vis-a-vis converts. And so they he basically said, bitch, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so they came back and the husband was like, yeah, he said it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And like, I mean, we had a lot of really uncomfortable, ridiculous encounters where he was manipulative and jerky. But at the end of the day, I converted in 10 months. Like, and he didn't he didn't gouge me. I spent maybe five hundred dollars and was I was done in 10 months. Like, that's not normal in the Orthodox world at all. I could have anticipated two years and two thousand dollars like that. That is the norm. And he converted me fast. I mean, I was up his ass the whole time. Like I was there every single week. Hi, hi, hi. Like, let's go. Let's do this. And so he wanted to get rid of me. But he, I mean, he he converted me, and a and lot of people. And was there a moment? Uh, was there any? I mean, this is probably too like Chekhov like of me. But was there a moment in which you're like, "Huh, there's something a bit off"? No, no, no never, nothing, never. I, I think it was because I had a boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband. He, it seems like, treated those of us with in relationships very differently than others. Like. There were several stories of him showing up at apartments of single women late at night and asking to watch movies. I never experienced that Barry Frindell. I experienced the, like, manipulative, slightly Asperger's-y, weird rabbi who was, like, somewhat of a father figure. Like, I never—when he was arrested, I called my husband and said— this is like because he's cheated on his taxes, because he's so disorganized with money that he's he got screwed by the IRS. And Seth said, 
They took all of these SD drives. They took all of his computers. This is sex. Yeah. This is not finances. They don't. They don't bust into your house and take all your computers when it's money. No. So, from your writing, I've noticed you've you've issues with like the conversion process even before this happened. Oh, I yeah. mean, and you sort of, I think you write that you didn't want to, you know, rock the boat. Basically, you didn't want to. You didn't want to air these sort of concerns. And you know, they're about money and they're about support. And you know, what happens once you're in the community and whether or not how you're welcome. So. What pushed you? I mean, was it is it was it this incident? That... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was always sort of afraid that um, if I were to write this blog post two years ago, which I I've had it in my head for years, and I wrote it at two a.m. on my phone. This is the Converts Bill of Rights. Yeah, yeah. And I wrote it at two a.m. on my phone, pregnant with a like maybe I think she was nine months old. My daughter. Like I was I was up at two in the morning on purpose writing this on my phone and I wrote it maybe in a half an hour if that and I like put it on the Times of Israel thinking it was it was going to be nothing because all of these issues were were things that had been percolating in my sort of social circle of converts for years Um, and I had no idea that that it would go viral like it did Um, but I was always afraid if I wrote this post two years ago that there would be um, there would be an instance in 20 years where my daughter was getting married and the ra- rabbi who was marrying her would call Barry and say, you know, her mother is a convert. Can you just like let me know if this is like a kosher conversion and just let me know like who you are and who she was just so I know that I can do this this marriage of the daughter of a convert. And Barry was um, vindictive and manipulative. And I anticipated him saying you know, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure it was a kosher conversion. I, If I were you, I wouldn't do that that wedding. Because and you've spoken out against conversion since. If I, if I had. Mm-hmm. If I had written this post two years ago and Barry was never arrested. Right. Now you're figuring uh, that guy cannot say anything to anyone anymore. So mixed in with your admiration, even during that time, was the knowledge that if you crossed him, yeah. he might, because he was complicated that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, so tell, us, uh, tell us about the Bill of Rights. Um, so I wrote it on my phone at two in the morning, right after he was arrested. Um, and it was basically like an airing of grievances, like Festivus early. And I said, (laughs) like, these are all of the things that were really screwed up. And a lot of what frustrates me about the conversion sort of conversation is that people talk about the process itself. But for me, I mean, a lot of it has been soul crushing. But the worst part has been afterwards, um, being interrogated at Shabbat meals about um, about why I converted and really personal questions that like no one is allowed to ask you in a social setting. Um, why did you convert? Did you the the worst one is did you convert for your for your husband? And which is so <laughs> unbelievably condescending. Like so. Little lady, do you not have enough of a brain to make your own decisions? Did did your husband have to tell you what to think and what to do? And did you take on this insanely rigorous religion for the sake of a man? I like what? No, like I like this is 2015. If I didn't want to marry an orthodox guy, I wouldn't have married an orthodox guy. Like it's so so condescending to say that to a woman, and it said to women. Every time someone says they're a convert, oh, did you do that to get married? No. No, I didn't. Thank you. I, I have my own mind outside of my husband. Um, so there's, I mean, then there's the instance of this woman who wouldn't eat at my house when she was a hospitality guest. Um, I mean, the other day someone said to me, um, you know, one of one of your friends, I was talking to one of your friends and he said, oh, well, Bethany's not really Jewish. And 
that's, I mean, how many years later? Four or five years after I converted. But because I converted, I'm, I'm not really Jewish. And Just, you like know so much more about Judaism having converted and having taken all those classes and spent right. all that time studying where most people whose mom just happens to be Jewish... Who, so now, like don't have to do that. Right. Don't know anything. So now, honestly, just between us, no one, no one is listening. <laughs> uh, are there moments when you experience yes. shit like this when you say, you know what, I'm, I'm done. Oh, I, yeah. I don't want anything to do with you. More people. often than not. T- tell me about those moments. Oh, you're the first person that's asked me this. I've like dodged this question I'm, for I'm a dark long time. Like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I are you leaving Judaism right here and now on Unorthodox? <laughs> is this this is exclusive? Quite a, this is not a real scoop Judaism. for us. I mean, call your Baptist is... friend; he'll make an offer. <laughs> right? No, we'll I mean, we can hook you up with lots of religions <laughs> in like five minutes flat. So the thing is, I've always thought of myself as as Jewish. Like, there's no leaving Judaism for me. This is it, and. I, I have the same anxieties that Jews have. I have the same jokes. I make a really good matzo ball soup. But the Orthodox stuff, if I could be Orthodox without ever encountering other Orthodox Jews, <laughs> that is my ideal world. You should open like Chabad Antarctica. <laughs> yes, you and yes. Seth and your kids. And How Penguin can and, we, can yeah. we make a minion and just live in the woods? I asked my husband that. Roughly every day. I think you've actually accomplished, like, in your mind and, and heart, like, the ultimate Jewish, like, essence. It's like <laughs> to be really, really committed to Jewish and really dislike other all, Jews. Other, all Jews. other Jews. Which is yes. kind of how, yeah, that's that's yeah. that's very, very, yeah. yeah I, I get that. Yeah. So I, it's just, it's crazy to me that, um, you know, we, we as an Orthodox Jews, like, there's so many stringencies that we follow, like... You can't, and there, there's some like ridiculous stringencies that make no logical sense as a modern person. Shabbos, right? The wool and linen mixed. You can't, oh, you yeah. can't mix wool and linen. Shabbos yeah. is kind of cool, though. And like, is I mean, absurd. I don't really. That's I, the point of it. Is I don't that really it's absurd? Do that. But like, I can't go outside if the string around my community, because there's a string around my community. Oh, yeah. If one of the strings is down, I can't push a stroller outside. That's insane. Yeah, the air roof, baby. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's insane. But people can can say, like, but you're not really Jewish. Why did you convert? Did you convert for your husband? Reminding, First of all, reminding me I converted, which is also a prohibition. And then, like, mis- mistreating me, which is so explicit in the Torah that you can't do a million times. But that somehow is, like, okay to do and from culture. But... Walking outside when one of the strings is down to push my kids in a stroller to the playground would, like, get me, like, banned from the community for life. Like, that's insane and really takes a lot of cognitive dissonance that I'm not capable of of having anymore. Like, it's I, – I mean, my husband and I don't belong to a shul. We don't go to a shul. We don't leave the house on Shabbat because we're lazy, not because there's no string. Plus, you have two kids. <laughs> yeah, we have two kids under two. One of whom does not sleep. Trying to take two kids to shul, I, I do no. this. We, it's not. No, it's, it's not, not happening. Pleasant. I don't know how you yeah. do it. No, I'm not doing it. Um, but we are like as minimally involved in Orthodox Jewish life as possible, on purpose. My husband's probably going to kill me if he listens to this. So, <laughs> so you're one of the most outspoken victims of Rabbi Ferndale's, yeah. you know, massive spying scheme and. And was there ever a moment where you sort of wanted to say, no, I'm not going to talk about this. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to be identified as a victim. I don't want to be speaking on behalf. I don't want to be an advocate. So do you want to hear a funny story? Yes. So I, he was arrested and I, I hadn't written this piece yet. And I hadn't decided if I wanted to sort of 
out myself as a victim. And I wasn't even sure if I was a victim. Um, So I talked to a reporter who I will not name because I don't know why I probably should, but he knows who he is. And I said, you know, I'll talk to you on background about the fact that I was doing something called a practice stunk, which is a practice trip to the mikvah, which is not a standard procedure. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of, I'll give you that, that favor of talking to you on the record and say I did it so that you can sort of write about the fact that he was doing things that were not necessarily standard. But I don't want to talk about him. I don't want to talk about the taping. It was so early on that we really didn't know if I was a victim. I was still hoping that I wasn't. Um, and he said, okay, I'll only quote you on the fact that you did a practice dunk. And I won't, I won't say anything else. And everything else was on background. So he publishes his piece. Um, I think it went live 15 minutes before Simchas Torah, I think. Um, and it said, um, I have the exclusive information that, the, that he was filming the practice stunks. And here is one woman who said she took a practice stunk. There you go. I'm a victim. That's how I found out I was a victim. And that's how everyone I've ever known found out I was a victim. I was outed to myself and to the entire Orthodox world. And my husband walked in the door as I'm reading it, and I was hysterically crying. So you didn't know you were one of the people taped? No. Oh, my God. But did the reporter know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he told me in print. He never never said, in the piece, I will be saying that the practice stunks were And when he talked to you, he knew you were a victim? Yeah. Well, he knew I was a victim. I didn't know I was a victim. So at that point, when I was outed without my go-ahead, I said, okay, I might as well be... I might as well talk about this because I want to take my voice back. Well, Bethany, I I don't know about the Orthodox community, but here in the unorthodox community, (laughs) uh, we like you very much. Thank you. We'll even count you in our minion. Like we're halfway there right now. Yeah, there we go with Julie. We got Julie. We're halfway there. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. I just might have a problem that you'll understand. We all need somebody to And now our world-famous feature, Gentile of the Week, Rand Richards Cooper. Three equally interchangeable first names. He could be Cooper Rand Richards. He could be Richards Rand Cooper, but he's Rand Richards Cooper. He lives in Hartford with his wife and nine-year-old daughter named Larkin, after after the great English poet? Yes. Yes. All right. Very goyish of you. And he's renowned the, for his uh, parenthood and skills. <laughs> for his sunny views of family life. Yes. He's the author. And our daughter knows that poem. I know. Does she know that poem? Oh, yeah. You, you, you taught it She quotes it back to us all the time. Uh, she gets off the dinner table. They fuck you up, your mom and dad, and just leaves. They it's give amazing. you all the faults they had. They add some new ones and just, new for ones you. just for you. They don't mean to, but they do. And is the author of the 1988 novel, The Last to Go. And a 1995 short story collection. He writes for everybody. Bon Appetit, Commonweal, The New York Times. Where else, Rand? Well, over the years, many, many Many, magazines. Harper's, GQ, uh, Glamour. I had a piece about co-ed locker rooms in Glamour. Glamour. Yeah, Glamour. Glamour. Uh, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt this this professional conversation. I feel we cannot continue to talk before we describe what Rand is wearing today. Well, as as our senior fashion correspondent, Leo, why don't you do the honors? You guys are in trouble, obviously. Well, no, Stephanie, I really think you should take it. You, You have the... It's really perfect. It's... Is that like a Henley tee? What's that shirt? What would that shirt it's be? A it's Henley a Henley collar. It is. Henley style. It is a with... suede Henley. Okay. Wow. <laughs> um, and a purple pen like tucked into the side of the buttons. And then a blue speckled with white 
Heathered. Heathered, yes, that's the word. Heathered cardigan. cardigan. A suede Henley and a heathered cardigan. <laughs> suede Henley and a heathered it is cardigan. How is it? Aggressively gentilic. Is that a word? Well, yeah, Outfit because, I've ever seen. you know, I know that this is a special slot you have here, and I'm a special guest. I know that you've chosen yeah. your guests by the Gentile nature of their names. So my friend Colin McEnroe, yes. I feel that my name Rand Richards Cooper. You outdo him, even. I, I, I do. I do think so. But I, so I wanted to wear the Gentile cardigan. Is, how is it that sweaters are so Jewish, but cardigans are so goish? We had Henry Alford on the show, one of our early episodes, Rand, and he said that one of, things, yeah, one of the things he likes about Jewish men, and he likes Jewish men, is that uh, they, excuse me, we, apparently, uh, we do sweaters well. Um, but Liel is positing that, in fact, if you put buttons on the sweater, it becomes That's gentile. a whole new, it's a whole new ballgame. A whole nother yeah, thing, Yeah, it's like, it's say. a little, like, classier, almost, or, like, something, like, I feel like you're going to read me a story, or, like, tell me, <laughs> like, read me poetry or something. Welcome you to the neighborhood. There's a yeah. comforting, <laughs> Take your shoes off, slightly song. somnolent... By the fireplace, avuncularity. But to like the comfortable, sweater. comfortable. <laughs> but I feel I feel I wear it in a more stylish way. No, it's like you it's do. comfortable, but not too comfortable. Like you know. No, <laughs> one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, Rand, is because I know through our conversations over the years mm-hmm. that you, um, you've you've been a sort of ally of the Jews. You grew up amongst Jews. You went to tennis camp with Jews. You now work in an industry, media that is controlled, um, as they say. It by, is by Jew. Oh, you. <laughs> by Jews. And, um, you know, what's it like being having been the honorary Jew in so many situations? As, as I said, when we discussed this um, uh, preparatory to the show, anything that children have a have have a, a lovely and enormous capacity for taking things for granted. Anything that's a standard part of their environment is um, normal to them. And so you you grow up really not seeing in some ways the things that are right around you part of the magic of leave-taking, whether it's a place you grew up in, is that you then begin, having left it, to see it, and the possibilities of return then become endless and interesting. For me, Jewishness was something I never saw because three-quarters of my friends in my neighborhood were Jewish. It's a small town in Connecticut. Interestingly, I I rarely go back there because I don't have any relatives there anymore, but uh, the the Jewish population of that town has greatly decreased. People have moved on. But there was a street near mine called Admiral Drive that was exclusively Jewish, and that's where all my buddies were. It was restricted. It was. It was restricted, yeah. Um, and uh, it, it was called the Gold Coast um, or the Golden Lane. R- really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was <laughs> Absolutely. By, by the Gentiles? By yeah, the by the Gentiles, Gentiles yeah. Um, and, and I mean, what was interesting, probably more interesting than my situation as as a, as a, a wasp minority among Jews was that of my parents who'd grown up in, in outside Philadelphia in places where there weren't Jews. Um, and then uh, and and retained all the conventional prejudices of that time and place. But then they came to this other place, and suddenly all of m- many of their best friends were were Jews. So uh, you know, as as I said to you before, it's it's been strange to me in adulthood to realize that much of America consists of these vast tracts of bucolia where people where there were hardly any Jews, and people grew up not knowing Jews, and therefore having all these bizarre ideas about them or exoticizing them. Or so, what what were some of the things that your parents were surprised to learn about? Jews. Uh, so this is a safe space. You, you, can talk you know, I, I my father was an was an athlete uh, uh, and and still at eighty eight uh, and plays golf and rides horses and uh, but uh, horses very gentile yeah very oh gentile my God. Um, the horses will be the last to go. I mean, yeah. he'll give up golf before he'll give up his daily. So he may have been surprised to find, uh, and this relates to one of the questions we have, Mark, that that uh, the Jews he knew were really good at tennis, and all his tennis playing buddies, wh- whom he would lose to, you know, were Jews. Um, I can remember uh, every now and then my parents m- would make a remark that I considered as a twelve-year-old sort of, you know, 
crassly anti-Semitic. So I, I asked my mother one time, why can't I go away to summer camp um, all summer? Why, why can't I only go for a week? And she said, well, you know, that's, that's sort of a Jewish thing. And, and We've said, talked well, about this. And I said, well, what do you mean? She's, she said, well, you know, sending your kid away for the whole summer, we, we don't do that. And, and I remember thinking, Which is interesting because Jews say sending your kids away to boarding school, we don't do that. Right. It's like Gentiles will get rid of their kids nine months a year. <laughs> and Jews will do six right. weeks. And not then, that summer. That summer think, is sacred. They think they're such good parents because they keep them around for well, six weeks you know, in the summer. I agree with that. The whole boarding school thing is bizarre to me. I've got a nine-year-old. You have young kids. I do. I mean, one regards the ever-decreasing remainder of one's child's childhood with a greedy... Yeah, you actually want to keep them around. Yeah, you want to hold on to it. So one of my wife's best, oldest friends in a very waspy way routinely sends their kids as soon as they turn 13 or 14 away to boarding school and everything. How can you do that? Right, that's actually when they become most... In, they can then help hold a conversation. Yeah. Like just as they're, just as they're at, age, at an age where you could hand them a book and say, this is good. Do you want to read this? And right before they t- stop talking to you all together. And right before they stop... To, right, 14 is the when magic you can actually... four-year <laughs> period in which they still pay attention. Off to dear with you. <laughs> now, so you have a nine-year-old, is it? I do, yes. Larkin She's about to nine, turn 10. And you're 86? Um, my, my mother passed away. My mummer, mother, my mummer, my mummer, mummy, mummy, my, mummy, <laughs> mummy passed away a number of years ago. And we loved mummy dearly. Um, my mother's age was always a great family secret, and she had gone uh, so far as to actually falsify documents and change <laughs> the commitment. birth order of siblings in her family, so that I only found out when I was 25 <laughs> that she was actually older than my uncle and not younger. And in her obituary, which my sisters and I wrote, we said, Marianne Hook Cooper, a woman whose age remained a secret even to those who knew her most intimately, died last night. She was born in on September 1920, question mark. She was born sometime between 1909 and 1946. We put her date of birth with a question mark. So all I want to say, Mark, is that I'm somewhere in my 50s yeah. uh, and that I am, I am continuing my mother's tradition of camouflaging and eventually falsifying my age. Okay. I like that because we don't hear like men doing that that right. often. It's like a real female thing. Yeah. So I think more men should start lying about their age. Right. Well, you know, lumber sexual vanity requires certain yeah. obfuscations. Are you getting work done? <laughs> on, on your on your on your punum? Um you know, no, no I'm not. I have considered dyeing my my uh, my silver hair. Have you? Yes, but I, I can't just It's can't, very distinguished. Don't bring do myself that. to do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, part of the goyish appeal just get lost. Yeah. Also, men who dye their <laughs> hair really well. are absurd. I agree. I I'm saying that right now. I think men could we, can we get some Consensus he, on that? He oh, says with his with his beautiful head. Yeah, like of, it's hard for me to be like that. Mahogany, the uh, mahogany it's like locks extra long right falling now. It's across like, it's his like, face. It's flowing. <laughs> so you, I know this has been a great. You were really looking forward to this day yeah. because when when in your life since your childhood on Admiral Lane, have you had a panel of Jewish experts who can answer any question you exactly. want about, about Yiddishkeit? What do you have any questions for us, Rand? I do, uh, and the first one has a, a prefatory vignette. It's uh, about four years ago. I'm sitting in the lobby of a Washington Marriott playing chess with my friend UV Shemish. And UV. UV. Yuval Shemish. Yuval. And uh, we used to play chess tournaments together, and then he moved away, and I rarely get to see him. So we meet once a year in D.C. He had moved to North Carolina, a terrible backwater from the Jewish point of view, uh, where he felt encircled and threatened. Um, and has now relocated to Minneapolis. But we're sitting in the lobby uh, playing chess when a bearded guy comes over and excuses himself for interrupting our game and says that he and his friends are one person short of a minion, I guess it was evening prayer or something, on on the other side of the lobby, and would UV 
consider joining them briefly so that they could have a quorum. And Yuvi, uh, an Israeli atheist um, who you know, doesn't know a bar mitzvah from a, a crowbar, um, uh, reluctantly agreed. And uh, so he goes over, and, um, and the guy never looked at me once. And, uh, and so when Yuvi comes back, I said, you know, what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> I mean, why does this guy assume from all the way across the room that you're Jewish and you're going to help him out? And Yuvi said, well, I get that. I said, what do you mean you get it? He said, you know, I always know, I always know a Jew. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, yeah, you know, I, you, you can't fo- a Jewish person always knows another Jewish, so another Jew. So we went on to sort of, I asked him a bunch of questions <laughs> about this Judar that he claimed was so infallible. Wasn't that an anti-Semitic calumny? Um, and, you know, how did that test work on person X, person Y, person Z? So my question is, do you go around with this confident feeling that, you know, you're all a secret society and you recognize each other through some sort of magic perception, which, if that's, any Gentile claimed, would be a hideous be anti-Semitic really column. Yes. Well, that's how we mate. <laughs> it's, it's like the original J-Day, which that was just us looking at each other. I think... I it, love this question, by the way. I have no idea what Leal and Stephanie but are so going like, to say. This, I've talked about this before. Like, when people, like Chabad people come up to you on the street and they're like, are you Jewish? Do you want to say a prayer? It freaks me out because I'm just like, don't judge me what are you saying i looked like i look jewish wait is it bad to look jewish like it gets me like crazy crazy so if someone obviously no one would ever do that to me because i'm a woman and they wouldn't ask me to join their minion which is a whole other topic but i think it does it like reinforces these stereotypes of like oh i know a jew like i look i can like just to admit that makes me think that like oh we look a certain but way. you're dodging his question which is do you right. feel you can spot a jew well i'm getting better at it I used to not... She went to Duke. She lost her powers in well, college because oh. no, she think, was fencing at yeah, Duke. Yeah, I didn't realize... Yes. Well, I, well, I grew up on Long Island where everyone was Jewish, same sort of same right. as you. And then I went to college and realized that actually no one was Jewish. So that kind of like threw me off a little bit. But now I'm, I'm getting better at it, I think. I, like, I look on the subway and I'm like, Jew, Jew. And I'm like, wait, what am I doing? <laughs> and I hate myself, so... <laughs> Israeli Liel? I, I think the thing that, that we have... <laughs> I think the radar doesn't pick up on Jews, the radar only picks up on other radars. You know, it's like anxiety is kind of like attracted to anxiety. The, the thing that you see isn't like, oh, that person's a Jew. The thing that you see is like, oh, that person looks like the kind of person who might look at me and wonder if I'm Jewish. <laughs> so I'm just wow. going to gravitate this is, towards this is that. A serious it's meta, completely meta, meta right? It's a sort of like... But that's, how does that work from across uh, the lobby of a Marriott Well, Hotel? you know, <laughs> existential ennui kind of radiates in, in big waves across vast... <laughs> Plus, you know, a friend of mine said, well, you guys are playing chess. Uh, ah, uh, yeah, he said, yeah, I was playing chess too, you know. <laughs> it should be in said. your heathered cardigan. I mean, come <laughs> on. Um, I don't. I think mine is okay. I think that my my Judar is as solid as my Gaydar, which is, and I'm not gay, but you know, I grew up. The Gay Street was nearby, right? And um, you know, it's like it's it's eighty percent, but I'm not going to go out on any limbs here. I mean, I'm the guy who won't ask a woman when she's due until she's about eight and a half months pregnant. I, mean, I don't take chances. <laughs> if I might be wrong. <laughs> I do not take chances. No, I, I believe me, I have con- committed and and I'm horrible, often horrible. I'm often wrong. So, um, you know, it's more that I mean, I'm a you know, I'm a five foot seven and a half guy who looks Jewish. So people do the work for me. You know, they come up to me and ask me to, to you know, join minions yeah, on the other side of, of the you're lobby. You're kind of a foregone conclusion. You're yeah. Not. So you and Daniel okay. Radcliffe. So when when your Judar doesn't work and there's an error, is it more likely to be a false positive or a false negative? I think a false negative. False negative. This is me with Paula Abdul. 
Right. It's like, oh, Shakira? Can I just ask this like, yeah. one question? And yeah. If it doesn't work, you just edit it out. Yeah. It's it's the theological question that I had listed there. You Bring know, it. I have a, uh, a born-again cousin and um, who, you know, found Jesus at a certain point in his life. And when I think about Christ, the Christian faith, maybe Catholicism is a little bit less so, Protestantism and more so, but there's this ongoing drama of, of people, um, you know, being saved and uh, and or being lost and there's this sort of black and white theological drama to being christian that has to do with the question of whether you embrace and accept certain ultimate questions ontological questions theological does god exist um if so was he revealed through through jesus is there heaven or isn't there um, and for a lot of people the question of christian faith turns ultimately on whether they're able to accept through faith these ultimate questions. And non-believers are those who cast that aside and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not convinced that there's any transcendental reality. I don't accept it, therefore I'm not Christian. So there's a great deal of ultimately theological anxiety that attaches to the faith. My question is, is there, you know, is, is Judaism a faith that does not have any of this kind of anxiety. If not, where does it go? Is it is it is it does it go sideways and is expressed in other ways and in in, in in other forms of more familiar Jewish anxiety? What? How can you sort of yeah, assess? It, it's expressed in like, will there be Jews in a hundred years? Uh, it's ex- I, it's expressed in. Like, no, but hold on. But you're you're answering sociologically. I think theologically, actually, it's the other way around. I think if you're a Christian you have uh, the good grace to go by. You have the knowledge that, you know, Christ died for your sins and he redeemed you with this great gift that the Lord has sent your way. And now you are free to pursue your life knowing that you will never be as perfect as Christ. You could just, you know, take shelter in him. For Jews, there's something even more uh, incredible. It's this notion that at the height of the biblical drama, you know, 600,000 of us um, are gathered at the foothills of the Mount and God comes out one and only time and says, you know, you'll be unto me a kingdom of priests, a chosen, a holy nation. Good night, everybody. Um, you know, for a book that goes into very, very elaborate detail over what to do if your bull gores another bull, this whole part of chosenness is remarkably glossed over. Like, they don't tell you why you're chosen or if your children are automatically chosen, can you be unchosen? Like, the fine print. What you're chosen is, for. What you're chosen for. Like, the fine print is never specified, which means that theologically... To be chosen means spending your entire life wondering what it means to have been chosen, which is this kind of perpetual theological anxiety, which I think makes us uh, so good at so many very particular things because we constantly are stuck with the questions. There will never be an answer. Christ is an answer. Chosenness is a dilemma. So instead of an anxiety about ultimate questions, it's really an anxiety of performance, what you've just described. Yes, that's absolutely true. Of measuring up. That's absolutely true because you don't know what you're measuring up to. So you're constantly looking upwards and upwards and upwards. There is no guy. It's like, oh, be like him. Like, be like who? <laughs> we don't have that. That's a great point. All right. Rand? I just want to boost from the magazine, Commonweal, and our blog, our website, dot Commonweal. That's D-O-T-C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Not Commonweal as in a thing that is on Nor a is it Commonwealth. It's Commonwealth without the T-H. Right. So it's America's most misnamed Magazine. I, I should say, I should say, as a religion writer, Commonweal is one of the great um, religiously influenced. Mag- it's a, it's a liberal Catholic magazine. Was it that is. is that a fair way That's to put correct. it? That's correct, and it's terrific and beautifully written. Rand Richards Cooper, man of three first and last names. Thanks for being our guest, Gentile. Thanks, guys.
So, anyone have a prayer for the week to begin 2016? Stephanie Button. Let's see. More Drake, less war, less Trump. That's my prayer for 2016. More Drake, less war, less Trump. Leo? Um, I pray, uh, as most uh, listeners will be listening to this on Thursday, as the president will be announcing his executive uh, measures on uh, firearms, uh, I pray for the well-being and safety of the Second Amendment. I, in honor of Bethany Mandel, want to pray that some convert out there who really feels like what she or he wants is to be a Jew is not dissuaded by the horrors that that poor woman has faced and that he or she finds a community of nicer people and better people to convert with. We love mail. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions for our panel of Jewish experts, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Be warned, we might read them on the air. Unorthodox is edited by Julie Subrin and produced by Sarah Ivry. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Michael Lapidus and kosher slaughtering by Elizabeth McGovern, Lady Grantham. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. To get our newsletter, shoot an email to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and ask for it. See you next week. Shalom, friends. <laughs>